Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, the Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, yeah. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. C.L.R. James was one of the great political and intellectual figures of the 20th century. Born in Trinidad, James spent much of his life in Britain and the US. His long career as a writer and activist brought him into contact with everyone from Paul Robeson and Richard Wright to Eric Williams and Kwame Nkrumah. James wrote several books, including his study of cricket beyond a boundary, a pioneering exercise in the social history of sport. But he's still best remembered for his classic account of the slave revolt in Haiti, the Black Jacobins. Christopher Columbus landed first in the New World at the island of San Salvador and, after praising God, inquired urgently for gold. The natives, Red Indians, were peaceable and friendly and directed him to Haiti, a large island, nearly as large as Ireland, rich, they said, in the yellow metal. He sailed to Haiti, one of his ships being wrecked The Haitian Indians helped him so willingly that very little was lost, and of the articles which they brought on shore, not one was stolen. The Spaniards, the most advanced Europeans of their day, annexed the island, called it Hispaniola, and took the backward natives under their protection. They introduced Christianity, forced labor in mines, murder, rape, bloodhounds, strange diseases, and artificial famine by the destruction of cultivation to starve the rebellious. These and other requirements of the higher civilization reduced the native population from an estimated half a million, perhaps a million, to 60,000 in 15 years. That was James himself reading the unforgettable opening paragraphs of the Black Jacobins. Our guest today is Paul Pula. Paul was the author of a pioneering biographical study, C.L.R. James, The Artist as Revolutionary, published shortly before James died in 1988. Paul spoke to us from his home, and you can also hear his birds from time to time on this recording. What was the context of Trinidad and the British-ruled Caribbean into which James was born, and what was his own family background in that context? Well, it was 1900, 1901, and uh, therefore very colonial, there had been faint stirrings uh, about nationalism in Trinidad, but not so much more cultural than political, you might say, more through the carnival than political challenges. His father's a school teacher. His mother is a, a woman who had been to a, a Catholic school and was a great reader of novels of various kinds. And so he's growing up with his father very much wanting this very bright son to be a successful lawyer or minor political official in the colony or doctor or something else that would be as far as a jet black talented young fellow could go. My mother's father was an engine driver and he became the first black fireman. The following clip comes from a conversation between James and Stuart Hall recorded in his Brixton home in 1984. James, now in his 80s, talks about his family background in Trinidad. My father's father came from Antigua, one of those islands, where black men used to see after the, the sugar. But in Trinidad, black men were not allowed to do that. In Trinidad, that job was done by white people, 
but he came from Antigua and he could do it. So when there was problem in the shop, he said, I can do it. And they put him to do it and he took it. So on both sides, I came from the black, not so high lower middle class. <laughs> we, were, we were something. And my mother is to this day the most persistent reader I know. You say that about both your parents several times. My father was a teacher, and he was trained at the Tranquility Training School, and he was number one. That's his background, and according to the most famous stories, he rebels against his uh, schooling, even though he's an outstanding student. He spends his time in the cricket field. He disappoints his parents very terribly and at the same time uh, graduates and begins teaching and becomes interested in teaching Trinidadian history to students and uh, then is drawn into journalism, begins writing some cricket reportage, his very first writing, and, and the way in which he believes he becomes convinced that they are no better than we, that is, uh, white over black. And he is asked by Captain Cipriani, a rising politician who challenges the political rule, not asking for independence, but asking for more sense of, of, of freedom, first becomes the mayor of Port of Spain and then essentially becomes a challenge to the larger system. And, and Captain Cipriani has open rallies in Port of Spain. Those are allowed. And he asked James to begin to write about him and the movement. And James does begin to write about him and the movement. Uh, not very many times. James is not drawn into direct political action, giving speeches for Cipriani or, or any such thing. But he's trying to cast around and see what his political, cultural life is going to be. He falls in with a group of essentially uh, brown-skinned intellectuals. It said that some gay intellectuals among them, all male. And they publish a couple of uh, magazines that uh, shock the respectable classes with their discussion of, of sex and, and uh, other such matters, the slums, the life in the slums for women, and so on and so forth. And you could say that he gets as far as an ambitious, young, literary-minded person could possibly get. What was the significance of his move to Britain in the 1930s? He was told, you have gone as far as a black man can go. Uh, that is to say, his friends who stayed and remained uh, literary, although they didn't really amount to very much a novel or two, they believed that it, he could get no further as a black man without leaving for England. But I think this is a bit of a memory lapse, willed a memory lapse, because the world of Trinidad was much too small for him. So he departs for London and under an unusual stipulation that the greatest of Trinidadian cricket figures would uh, invite him, pay for his way, give him a place to stay. And in return, James would uh, essentially ghostwrite a story about this uh, autobiography of, of this great cricket figure. And so James lands in Britain. He writes a, a number of uh, letters, really small essays, back to a Trinidad newspaper. And they explain 
that he falls immediately into the Bloomsbury crowd and, and appears at literary events and is startles people as this very handsome jet black young man who could speak with great knowledge, recites Shakespeare at a moment's notice. And as he says, is taken up by beautiful young and wealthy women spirited away in limousines. And, and uh, in the meantime, he's playing cricket up North and he falls into a job writing for the Manchester Guardian. He is almost immediately, within a year, an outstanding uh, cricket reporter, admired by uh, by all. Uh, so he's preparing himself in a different fashion to become a, a cultural writer of note. In 1970, James spoke with Studs Terkel for his radio show in Chicago. Terkel asked him about the political importance of the West Indies. Uh, the fact that you're West Indian... This has always been a fascinating historical point, isn't it? We think among the leaders and the whole black liberation movement through the years have been West Indians. Yes, we have had a whole lot of them. We have had Marcus Garvey. We have had Aimé Césaire, the poet, with that magnificent poem on Africa in which he stated the question of negritude. We have had uh, René Marin, who won the Prix Goncourt with a book, Batuala, on Africa. We have had uh, George Padmore, Marcus Garvey, as I said, and we have had, there's no doubt about it, that Malcolm X's mother was a West Indian, and that had something to do with it, and Stokely Carmichael was born and grew up there as a boy. I also took some part. I believe it is something that is worthwhile, and I know and feel myself as a West Indian as Padmore was. What contacts did he have at that point with pan-African political activists who were based in Britain? Well, one astonishing thing about his contacts is that several of the leading pan-African figures were from the West Indies, uh, the, the Anglophone West Indies. The very best one, the best known one, he had actually known in his childhood in Trinidad, uh, swam in the Arima River together, George Padmore who was close to the common turn, part of the common turn, and then broke with the common turn in order to take a, an independent path uh, towards West African struggles and colonial struggles in general. And several other people were from similar backgrounds, remarkably. First, they become part of a league of colored peoples, LCP, founded by a Jamaican in 1931. And then he becomes part of a series of organizations to support Ethiopia, uh, the African friend, international African friends of Abyssinia. And this is his route to meeting a, a wide spectrum of important people, including Krishna Menon, who are part of the anti-colonial struggle in, in, in London, but really have contacts from the West Indies to India and Consequently, it's a small group, but it's a very potent group, and it places him at the center of, of the growing Pan-African movement. And this becomes a defining purpose for his understanding of, of politics that differentiates him from existing communists or, as we'll soon see, existing Trotskyist movements. He, he won't be able to be really part of these things comfortably because they don't uh, fully absorb or associate themselves with this anti-colonial movement. But it also gives him a status within Britain that's quite unique. The Independent Labor Party, the ILP, 
had grown to a considerable significance in the mid-30s because the Communist Party had disgraced itself by extreme sectarianism from the late 1920s onward. And the Trotskyist movement was only a series of, of individuals, mostly intellectuals, and had no significance itself, really, other than a, a publishing a, an occasional newspaper or something. So James was able to navigate between the anti-colonial struggle on the one hand and uh, become the outstanding intellectual by far within this, this small Trotskyist movement. And at the same time he was doing these things, he was uh, beginning to write on uh, Trinidadian independence, the case for West Indian self-government was a little pamphlet about Captain Cipriani and the struggle in Trinidad and began to assess the significance of the rise and fall of Marcus Garvey and the, and the Garveyite movement to understand it, not just as a, a crazed effort to bring African-Americans back to Africa, but instead as raising race awareness in a way that race awareness had not been raised before among thousands and thousands of Afro-Caribbeans in general, but African-Americans as well. So he's, he's working with these movements, and by virtue of giving speeches in London and other places, he's a very charismatic speaker. He was able to draw crowds to him as, as an individual intellectual and as someone who could have something remarkable to say, regardless of the fact that British communists viewed him with anathema since he had uh, taken a, an anti-Stalinist perspective. The work by James, for which he's still best known today, I believe, The Black Jacobins, opened up an entirely new field of study when it appeared in 1938, decades before the work of Marxist historians like Edward Thompson or Christopher Hill. How did James come to write the book and how would you compare it with two works that appeared in the same decade? Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution on the one hand and Black Reconstruction in America on the other. Well, this story is a little bit complex, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to simplify it. He got this idea to write this into his mind, he said at different times, partly the inspiration of Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, which he regarded as one of the greatest books he'd ever read. But there was another purpose, and uh, that most certainly was his interest in uh, anti-colonialism and specifically in the Haitian Revolution at, in order to show something that no one had shown before. That is, that the slaves had freed themselves. They hadn't depended upon whites to free them in this great historic struggle, uh, first of all. But second of all, and this is crucial, that they were not part of a distant backward society, but by virtue of their placement, their forced placement within one of the most modern industries in the 18th century world, the sugar plantation, they had gained the skills and knowledge to work with each other to create this wealth which built Europe's greatest cities, and that they were not a backward people by virtue of the socialization of production, here we come to the importance of Marx to him, by virtue of the socialization of production, their participation in it, the social relations of production, one worker with another, they were part of the modern world 
and being part of the world, especially an oppressed part of the modern world, they had successfully fought to free themselves. In his interview with Studs Terkel, James spoke about the material and ideological sources of the revolt in Haiti. There was a question of paradox involved, a question of contradiction involved. You point out the French Revolution was, in a sense, bourgeois. It uh, taking over, knocking off the no- at the same time, slave trade yes. was part of their yes. Life. The the money that the bourgeoisie got that made them what they were, and as Jaurès says, gave them the feeling for liberty, that came from the slave trade. It's a very sharp contradiction. Now, the second paradox that I'm concerned with is that this sugar plantation was a very severe and demanding mode of labor but it also concentrated the, the blacks and gave them some element of social civilization, some feeling of unity, and enabled them to learn fundamentally many aspects of Western civilization. So, so that this sugar plantation was at the same time the most degrading and at the same time a very civilizing effort on the part of the black people. Again, paradox. The degrading nature of the work, the exploitation, at the same time, communication, communication because of the constant contact. A con- constant contact contact and also the sugar plantation produced sugar and the food that they ate came from abroad, the sugar was sent abroad and so forth so that they had education not only in what was going on around them and the close relation with their masters but the sugar plantation was intimately connected with foreign developments and finance and so forth and all that the slaves learned. So the window now was being opened, the window awareness was occurring and once that happens People can no longer be the same. They, and the moment the French Revolution began, because what is important about the San Domingo Revolution, which has made it the most successful, the only successful slave revolt in history, is the fact that they were slaves. They had these elements of civilization in them, but they were able to use the doctrines and ideas of the French Revolution and apply them, these ideas, to their own situation. So they had not only a physical basis, contact with society, but they had a new ideology. That's what they were, liberty, equality, fraternity, all that meant to them, the republic, and so on. Now, I said that no one else had seen this. That's not quite accurate because W.E.B. Du Bois, writing Black Reconstruction, published a year earlier, had seen the same thing in the American South by perhaps exaggerating, by calling the slaves running away from plantations a general strike of slaves. Actually, they they left as soon as they had the opportunity when Union troops uh, occupied regions of, uh, of slavery during the Civil War. But he was coming to the same point that given the opportunity, black people would free themselves. Now, the the great significance of this, James, is a conclusion that no one had come to, certainly not Lenin before his death, certainly not Stalin, but also certainly not Trotsky. James had come to believe, and he suggests in his book, World Revolution, already a sort of deviation from Trotskyism, as Trotsky explained it that the peasants and workers of the global south of the non-white world were waiting for a signal from the workers of the west they were waiting for a recognition from the workers of the west and a step towards socialism in the so-called advanced countries for themselves to throw off their colonial oppressors and step into the modern world and vice versa 
although this is only suggested. The workers of the Western world were dependent finally upon that uprising of peasants and, and, and others in the colonial South. No one had really said this before. It was never believed within the, the field of Marxism previously, although black nationalists suggested something along those lines. So world revolution, which was called in Britain the, the Bible of Trotskyism, but not by Trotsky, was a giant step forward in suggesting what world revolution would need to be. Uh, no one had said this so, so clearly before. And now perhaps we'll uh, speak of James looking through the archives of the French Revolution because he was convinced that the Jacobins, the ordinary Jacobins, if they'd had the opportunity, would have happily supported the slaves in Haiti and their uprising. And that a moment had been reached in the late 18th century of genuine transracial worker solidarity. That is the conclusion he was coming to in, in his uh, in his work in the archives in, in, in Paris. And that really established him uh, through the publication of the book, The Black Jacobins, as a highly respected writer, at least respected highly in the UK and the US, where he received extremely good reviews from the London Times, the New York Times, and placed himself among outstanding historians of something that had never been studied before in this way, and placed himself obscurely almost immediately because the context wasn't right for this book to change any historian's mind, to change the field of history. You could say, like W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, it was 20 or 30 years too early for historians or the intellectual communities at large in the UK and the US to absorb it into their world and even imagine to reorganize uh, British history or American history around these understandings. How would you describe the legacy of that book over the long term? The strange thing is it fell into such obscurity that only the suggestion uh, of uh, uh, an editor at Pantheon Books called Andre Schifrin to bring it back into print as a textbook mainly for uh, university classes already in 1960 and before the U.S. Civil Rights Movement has raised the question of what was the role of black people in the U.S., what was the role of black people in the world, and therefore, James seized on this opportunity, rewrote a fair amount, dropped a lot of the 1930s Marxist rhetoric from it, and added new historiography and added an appendix on the importance of Castro and the, and the Cuban Revolution. And it appeared in 1963. It was adopted by U.S. history classes in significant number, more and more as the years went on. And, and University classes were at an all-time peak, vast expansion of, of universities, and the very, very tiny beginnings of something that could be called black history. So there's more and more audience for it. I, I don't think it had a, a splash in the, in the political world yet, but it was now seen alongside Du Bois as really, really important books for the story of people of color in the, in the New World, most especially and has since assumed its place as a classic. 
I mean, people now talk about Black Jacobins as an important historical book, but really, it was also a thesis about contemporary black politics. Wasn't it, it was a politics. James also spoke with Stuart Hall about the enduring influence of the black Jacobins. Because fundamental politics always has behind it the struggle of different classes. Different sections of the class can struggle and kill one another, but that is not much a social event as when one social structure is fighting against another part of the social structure. Certain logical and historical things emerge which are applicable to similar periods a thousand years before or after. But what is the significance of Toussaint Louverture for you? I mean, how do you see the connection between those events in, in Haiti then and the 20th century politics? I have already said during the last few minutes that any great revolutionary event in history, from it you can always find principles and historical movement ideas that are complied to others. I was saying that before. Now, that is so in any great revolution. And the San Domingo Revolution was the first great revolution of black people. Now, when you consider the role that Africa was going to play in the world in the years to come, that then acquires a significance furthermore it was a part of the French Revolution. So that you have in that historical event a duality in which it takes part in the Great Revolutions. It's very important, the first was the British. And at the same time, it points the finger to the revolutions among colonial peoples. So that that revolution is something that is worthy of consideration by every type of historian. If even you study the French Revolution, that is the extreme point of the French Revolution in Europe. But at the same time, it's the beginning of the colonial upheavals. So that is, a, from the point of view of the historian, a significant, in fact, a dominating feature of the study of history. Why did James relocate to the US at the end of the 1930s? And when he moved to the US, what did he have to say about racism and the African-American freedom struggle? It's a very good question because of the complexity of his relationships with Trotsky and Trotskyism. James P. Cannon, one of the two founders of the Trotskyist movement in the U.S., visited the U.K. in 1937 and planted the seed of the idea in James's mind that he should leave the U.K. and, and come to the U.S. Now, meanwhile, the Communist Party in Great Britain, as in the U.S., which had suffered so badly from uh, disgrace and sectarianism, made a huge sweeping comeback in the rise of the Popular Front. The possibilities of, of Trotsky as being more than a, a small minority resisting this large movement with a much larger support, anti-fascist support group, had diminished enormously by 1937, 1938. And the Trotskyist movement itself in the UK had uh, diminished very much, uh, fragmented. And uh, further, the prospects for resisting World War II, uh, not supporting the war, which one wing, uh, James's wing of Trotskyism, uh, believed in, 
had little prospect in the UK, which faced the possibility of, of uh, bombing and invasion. So for a variety of reasons, suddenly the U.S., he'd already, he was already fascinated with American popular culture. The U.S. seemed much more inviting to him. He migrated and uh, uh, under a, a temporary visa, which he never really secured citizenship, but which allowed the government to deport him in 1953. But he uh, entered the U.S. and instantaneously, you might say, engaged in a wide-sweeping lecture tour as, as much as the Trotskyist movement could uh, get audiences together. But he was known almost immediately as this wonderfully handsome and charismatic lecturer in, in an era when still popular lectures uh, on uh, politics drew large public audiences. So he, he went on this sweeping tour, and uh, he also made a visit to Trotsky uh, in exile in Mexico. And from what we can understand, Trotsky uh, was eager to meet him, was uneasy because James posed some problems, including in World Revolution, whether the Vanguard Party had taken too much authority for itself, whether it wasn't able to check its own limitations, even in the days of Lenin, uh, an idea that, that Trotsky didn't take to, to in too much of a friendly way, and that perhaps Trotskyists would not play the key vanguard party role, but some other sense of being part of a, a, a larger revolutionary movement. And uh, uh, James also insisted that the black movement had an independent role. It did not need to be part of the socialist or communist or whatever the left party was. It could maintain its own independence and make its own decision. This was a shocking view within the field of of Bolshevism and one that James was the one that Trotsky wasn't entirely prepared to accept. And on the other hand, James was such an outstanding figure and uh, Trotskyism had so few outstanding figures and, and none of color that uh, uh, Trotsky took these ideas seriously and, and hoped that they would go somewhere through James and, and his influence. Uh, so here he is in, uh, in New York, for most of the time, living in a, a, a district that's a mixed race, an unusual a district of Harlem. And he makes friends, including Richard Wright, the famous novelist, about which we know almost nothing except their social relationships, and continues touring and begins writing furiously for the, the Trotskyist movement and really does not publish a book between World Revolution appearing in 1938 or 1939, and Beyond a Boundary, appearing in 1963. He gives his life in, over entirely to leading a revolutionary movement, even though that revolutionary movement gets smaller and smaller with the, the collapse of the left following the Second World War and the increase of the pressure upon the left from uh, all kinds of repressive agencies. How did his expulsion from the U.S. in the 1950s by the immigration authorities affect James? Well, he desperately wanted to stay. And uh, he petitioned Congress or some Congress people. And you could say that his book uh, on Herman Melville was in part an appeal to stay, obviously unsuccessful. There's a uh, an anecdote uh, of uh, him uh, asking Sir Anthony Eden 
if he can be persuaded to help James to stay in, in the U.S. and uh, Eden replying that being deported to the U.K. could not be considered a form of punishment. It's hard to say whether this anecdote uh, can be uh, documented or not. At least I couldn't document it. But it's interesting that being expelled in 1953 throws him back upon himself, but also gives him a, a different world. He travels, he lectures in various parts of the Anglophone uh, Caribbean and is recognized in a world where there are few outstanding intellectuals as an outstanding intellectual. It now has to be remembered from the 1930s that he had uh, sort of mentored Nkrumah, uh, who rises to great historical significance uh, with the, the struggle for the independence of Ghana, and uh, to remember even further back that when he was a teacher in Trinidad, in youth, one of his students was Eric Williams, a very bright fellow, who James says he mentored through the writing of Eric Williams' most important works in the late 1930s when Williams was getting a, a PhD at Oxford. So James's contacts from the Caribbean to Africa uh, are mostly at this very top level, the most famous intellectual and political leaders. But boy, talk about having the contacts. He had them and he could speak in parts of, of Britain. He could speak in the, in the West Indies. And I think he was able to make the occasional tour in, in parts of Africa, even then, to impress his ideas upon people and to carry on a, a, an intellectual life that was already shifting him from this idea of proletarian revolution, which more or less dominated his notions in the 1940s in the UK, although he'd never left the, the color question aside, but class really was his central focus. For him to shift in the 1950s toward a, a rather different focus, that is the opening of the colonial world toward revolutionary struggles all over. He won't associate himself with those struggles that depend upon the Russians. But on the other hand, he'll find places that don't depend upon the Russians and are looking for a different path. And he'll place himself as an advisor or he'll have many contacts or he'll begin to provide cultural lectures, philosophical lectures, uh, which help people, ordinary people, who will come to a, a public library in Trinidad in 1959 to hear a series of six lectures by him, which helped to open them up to their own significance, to the fact that they have entered the world as, as modern individuals, and they are ready to assert their independence and their role in the world. So he, he has this group of no more than 60 or 70 people in the U.S., which undergoes two or three significant splits and is reduced further and further down to a handful. And by that time, I'm a member of the handful, more or less, uh, and then uh, dissolves. His own political entities don't really play a big role after the middle 1950s. But he emerges as a black intellectual above all this. For the U.S., the appearance of his history of sports, but especially cricket called Beyond the Boundary, 1963, the same year that the Black Jacobins reappears. For the U.S., this really doesn't raise much interest. Uh, so much of it is about cricket and his background in cricket. 
as well as his views of the transformation of cricket, the democratization of it by non-white people showing that they are just as good as the uh, as the white British cricket players. He provides a, a fascinating and perhaps the best history of the rise of modern sport that had been written up until that time. Much, of course, has been written since, but up until that time, none so clear-minded connecting it with sports in antiquity and bringing it through to the color question and written, of course, with a stunning literary brilliance. It doesn't sell many copies. None of his books sell many copies. To this very day, other than Black Jacobins and especially course assignments, none of his books really have a, a great popular appeal. Uh, for whatever reasons we we could discuss, but by the uh, appearance of of beyond a boundary, he, he has a, a a significant reputation in different quarters. In 1984, Stuart Hall asked James if his passion for cricket was still undimmed. But you're still deeply involved in what happens on the cricket pitch. Absolutely, matters, not just as a game. No, no, I like it, and people are involved, and when. The, a cricket match lasts for five days today in 1984 and you get thousands of people turning up for five days the modern world don't spend five hours on anything they will finish up with it and go five days in other words that thing has penetrated deep into fundamental realities so that people in 1984 can go and spend five days but historically does it matter who wins here I know it doesn't matter who wins to me. I used to want the West Indians to win. And that remained with me for a long time. But now I don't care. I remember uh, people uh, on the street in the UK would say, he's that cricket man. Because when test matches began to be televised, sometimes he would come in as a commentator. And his views were uh, assiduous and interesting. Now, you could say in the, in the least documented part of his past that uh, within London, he had a, an apartment that was a sort of salon that people would come and, and talk with him, revolutionaries of different kinds, the young West Indian rising leaders of various kinds, and that he was already ruminating the opportunities to uh, intervene and preparing himself, as well as staying in touch with an amazing array of people in various countries across the world. But you could say that he was preparing his role for the late 1960s. He's allowed to return to the U.S. in 1969 when a group of students at Northwestern University get him to be invited. And intermittently, he'll stay in the U.S. another decade. And he presents himself now in 1969 to audiences as the voice of the Pan-African past. He's able to recuperate people such as W.B. Du Bois, who he never placed so highly because Du Bois' connections with the communist movement. He's able to place Du Bois' 19th century uh, black nationalist forebears. Uh, He's able to place France Fanon, as someone who's making a vital contribution to our understanding of psychology, which had become much more interesting to him in the 1960s than it had before, along with phenomenology and and a number of other 
strains of ideas that uh, uh, describe a sort of self-actualization or the understanding of the authentic. He rejected Heidegger, but he decided in the late 60s he was mistaken about rejecting Heidegger, and he began to try to deal with these questions that seemed so vital at the time, uh, rather than refuting existentialism as as Marxists were wont to do, but instead to deal with these, these questions. And he wows audiences across the U.S. and uh, some other parts of the world, and he he lands himself in back in Trinidad, uh, Guyana, and uh, Barbados, and a few other places, and speaks to the rising tide of independence. And he seems always a senior figure. He, he seemed at, at age sixty nine to me to be very ancient and almost ashen faced. But when he would rise to speak, blood would rush into his face. He would say, I'm going to speak for 58 minutes. He would always stay with precisely within the time limit he'd set for himself. And his uh, uh, second wife observed about his uh, lecturing in Los Angeles in 1939, the first time she ever saw him, that with his first phrases, there was an explosion in the audience. I think she must have been exaggerating. But I remember these lectures, attending a, a, a couple of lectures, and there was an astonishing response. It was no doubt because he was speaking from this Pan-African past, uh, but it was also his extraordinary eloquence. It was a bit like listening to E.P. Thompson, if I could make a comparison. In 1983, James and Edward Thompson met for a recorded conversation about history and politics. James looked back on his work in the movement for African freedom. What interests me is that I always feel you have this historical view of the unpredictability of process. Maybe you are emphasizing the optimistic, the hopeful perspectives over strongly, but unless we can see those perspectives, then we can't work for them. We began in Africa about 1950-something, George Padmore and the rest of us here, and people laughed at us. Mm. They said those yeah. West yeah. Indians have read yeah. a lot of books, yeah. and but they know nothing, independence of Africa. Twenty years later, from the north, right down to Namibia, Africa is independent. I was in Ghana in 1957, talking to Nkrumah and to Padmore about what had happened. And if anybody had told us that in 10 years' time there would be 40 new African states and in 25 years' time, apart from South Africa, the whole of Africa would be free, we would have said, that man is an agent provocateur sent by the colonial office in order to disrupt the movement. We didn't think it possible. How did James perceive the Caribbean radical thinkers and activists who came after him, such as Walter Rodney, for example? Well, uh, yes, Walter Rodney was a disciple. He called himself a disciple, although he was a little ambiguous about that because he didn't really want to be trapped in the role of disciple. But if you read how uh, Europe underdeveloped Africa, Rodney was clearly following the lines of of thought that, uh, that James had set out and I can say I was in touch with James within a week after the assassination of Walter Rodney. And like the overthrow of the government in Grenada, the landing of U.S. Marines, these two events were so shocking because they didn't mark the end of an age 
of the Caribbean left. Sad to say, the great tide had been turned back. He greeted the assassination of, of Rodney as a tremendous sense of, of, uh, of disaster, of, of rollback, because uh, he was so keen to the idea of the individual within the Caribbean how an individual can lead and bring an entire people behind him. And that Rodney seemed as if he was destined to do that in Guyana. I have to add, James had warned him urgently not to return to Guyana, but brave and feckless Walter Rodney had anyway. Something else important happens. In 1959 or 1960, James is called back by Eric Williams, his former student, to become editor of PNM Go Forward, the organ of the uh, of the progressive national movement, and then it, when he assumes control, it, it uh, renames itself, and it's a vitally interesting newspaper that he uses to educate widely, but also somewhat subtly to challenge the bureaucracy that's taking hold in Trinidad to assert that ordinary people must rule this country moving toward independence or the project of independence and transformation is going to fail. Above all in Trinidad, this meant bringing black people and uh, uh, people of descent from India together around one program. Well, James is uh, viciously attacked within the bureaucracy by people who are rising to various government positions. They don't want him to disrupt this change from from white elites to black elites, if you could vulgarize the the trend of things. And finally, Eric Williams makes clear to James that he must cease editing the paper and he might as well leave the country, which is what he does with considerable sorrow because he thought that he had been given a, a central position. Some people said it seemed as if number two was becoming number one. In other words, as if he really was the true leader of, of Trinidad, even though Eric Williams was beloved, uh, considered almost godlike to uh, ordinary people in, in, in Trinidad. He had, James had around the same time, been writing furious letters, personal letters to Kwame Nkrumah making the same point politically, that it was the role of ordinary people in the struggle against the English, the role of ordinary people and not the rising bureaucrats that would make the revolution or lose the revolution, and that to let the government fall into the hands of the rising bureaucracy. But the division was clear. There was a a new middle class that was taking over the, the civic roles of the departing uh, colonists. And that new middle class was going to need to stop to repress the demands that were coming from below or wouldn't be able to achieve respectability in the world and uh, its uh, uh, presumed place in the world, uh, given all the pressures from the former colonial power and uh, most especially from the State Department and, and the CIA. Perhaps there really was no alternative But for Nkrumah and for Eric Williams, it was to accept the reality of the bureaucracy and the non-revolutionary transformation of the decolonizing process. And uh, to James, that was one of the great disappointments of his life, most certainly.
What influence did James have on the new left-wing and anti-racist movements that were emerging in Europe and the US from the late 1960s onwards? Since I was or thought of myself as being part of them, uh, I have an uh, intimate uh, but also possibly biased view. But the difficulty of understanding this is that the rise and fall of what we can call the new left was very, very quick. It wasn't a, a, even a decade in length. So that the ideas that he had, that he presented mainly in lectures, were absorbed by a rising number of people by, let's say, 1970, a year when I brought out the first anthology of his writings uh, as a, an expanded issue of my magazine, Radical America. And it was, you know, if 8,000 readers was widely read, then it was widely read whatever that means. But by the time they'd absorbed it, the anti-war movement uh, was already in retreat. The vast demonstrations against the war uh, climaxed in 1970, 1971, and with the end of the draft, they melted away. The revolutionary movements in a bunch of different places, I'm thinking of the Portuguese revolution, but I'm thinking also of the rising tide of it left in Italy, and a number of other places, the general strike in Quebec is another great example. And the extraordinary number of strikes in the U.S. involving people of color and women in places there hadn't been strikes before, like the post office, challenges to union bureaucratic leaderships, all these things that were at a high tide from 1969 to 1972, they melted away. Consequently, the visions and lessons that James tried to teach didn't fall upon deaf ears. We tried to carry it forward in my little magazine, Radical America, for a long time thereafter. But the possibility of the readers taking action in the ways that James had anticipated and hoped and proposed, that could no longer be. The role of, of James had by 1980, slipped into the great background figure, the great scholar, the admired black revolutionary visionary, and so forth, but much more an item for the classroom or an item for committed political radicals to read as background material for what they were engaging in at the present uh, than anything more immediate. In the following clip from his conversation with Edward Thompson, James spoke about the importance of bringing the masses into the writing of history. He also expressed his admiration for the work of historians like Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm. I must say I very much admire what you, Hobsbawm, and one or two others are doing, that you are going back and digging into the history and digging out things that people have forgotten and ignored and suppressed, and that makes us to understand today the greater importance of the people who are ignored. You are able, by digging deep into past history, I think that's what you are doing, and dealing with some people who have been ignored, you are making real and making it important for historians today to forget what is taking place at the top, to deal with it, but to go down. You go down to the mass of the population who do not write books and do not express themselves in speeches. And by bringing what they did 
and the few things that remain of what they said. You are not only writing that history, but you are telling historians today that's what you have to do. Many people in the Caribbean tell me that the work that I write about the Caribbean is of fundamental importance to them in that I go beyond wages and the oppression of the imperialists and deal with the social and artistic and historical development of the population. You have to go below and it is below that you can make your history contemporary although you are writing about 200 years ago. Or about Some, Greece, ancient or Greece. About ancient yeah. Greece. That's what I believe yeah. is the function of the historian and that's what I'm trying to do. It's now more than three decades since your own book on James appeared as one of the pioneering works in the field. And it's also more than three decades since James himself died at the age of 88. How do you think his reputation in both academic and political circles has fared since then? Well, I want to begin with a, a, a footnote. There's so much that's not available to people who are in a shutdown situation, and they may not be able to get access to James' work. So I, I just want to suggest not my biography, but rather something which is available online. It's called CLR James, colon, His Life and Work. I edited, it appeared as issue number 12 of the journal called Urgent Tasks, and it is available online, and it contains many, many essays, notes, comments, by his contemporaries, uh, by fellow teachers at the University of District of Columbia, and by political activists in 1960 who saw him as as their visionary. So CLR James's life and work will will give anyone listening to this a, a, a nice wide view of the pe- what people at the time coming out of the the New Left thought of him, and how they saw him in the West Indian context as well as within their own North American or British context or Italian context, for that matter. My view of the cultural studies of CLR James is that they've often been very interesting, but we have existed within such a period of political stasis, in part of the left at least, that only since the 1910s, with Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the challenges posed by Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, just to mention a few things, have given people a a sort of new beginning to an idea of a a socialist movement, a socialist vision beyond the collapse of the Soviet Union, beyond the rise and fall of neoliberalism, and beyond the terrible stasis in the movements of, of, of people in color. And so my view is that that the cultural studies materials prepared on James, more and more uh, academic work being uh, done on James, very interesting, potentially very valuable, exists within this limited framework and without great political implications. But now things may change. And I'm thinking that people who have been studying James for a long time or young activists who've begun working on James, thinking about James, will be able to put his ideas much closer to practice than they have been. At least that's what I hope for. Many thanks to Paul Bueller for that account of the life and work of CLR James. You can find out much more by reading Paul's book, CLR James, The Artist as Revolutionary. 
which was republished by Verso in 2017.